inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm here to answer all of your questions. Now, if you are new, welcome. I receive these questions over on the community tab within my podcast YouTube channel, which I know sounds really complicated, but it's very simple. Go over to YouTube. If you're watching this on YouTube, you're already there, but go to Opinions That Don't Matter. That's the name of the channel. It's the podcast I do with my husband, Sean. Get onto that homepage of that channel. And then across the top, you'll see it says like videos and about, and there's a tab that says community, hit that. And on Sundays, I ask for your questions and I usually film these on Mondays or Tuesdays. So the sooner you get in your question, the better. Now today we have, I think eight questions. Yes, we have eight. And the last, usually one or two questions are just randomly chosen. So don't think if your question doesn't get the most thumbs ups that it won't get answered. I do my best to get through as many of them as possible. Let's just jump into question number one. And question number one says, hi, Katie, how do I get over the feeling of being hyper aware about myself in therapy? When I'm in session, I always feel like I'm a little girl who's in trouble. That's interesting, which makes me super aware of every single part of my body, the way I move or talk, even the way that my mouth moves when I speak. I never seem to get comfortable. It makes me try not to move much. And I tend to people please just so I can get some comfort. How can I overcome this feeling and feel safe? Thank you so much for all that you do. Now we had a few follow-up comments below this, but let's just dive into this first. Now, like anything, I don't try to necessarily attack the symptom, like this hyper awareness that we have. I don't always try to go in on that first. I'm actually more curious about why this is happening or if we've seen this happen at other times in our life. And what I mean by that is, is this hyper-awareness coming from anxiety? Is it self-consciousness? Like you said, you people please. Is that something that you struggle with as well? And the reason that I ask these questions is because if we dig into that and come up with some answers, like maybe we learn that uh, we had abuse in our past and we fawned over our abusers as a way to not get harmed as much. So that's why we're hyper-aware in therapy. It's like a pattern in our life of people who we think, you know, uh, I don't know what the word is. I don't want to say power over us, but like people who we give power to or who have some control or power in our life. And we could say like teachers, parents, therapists, doctors, people like that. We put in that esteem, right? And it could be that that's triggering this. Or it could be, again, going back to like the self-esteem component and thinking that everyone's judging us. Maybe in the past, we've seen a pattern of this and in relationships with our family, maybe that's how we were treated. There's a lot of places that we can go with this, but I would encourage you to spend some time being curious about where we think this is stemming from. And if we've experienced this feeling at other points in our life or in other relationships, and what do those relationships have in common with therapy? And also just keep in mind that Therapy itself can just be triggering because we talk about a lot of different things and it's a different type of relationship. And therefore, this therapy might not have anything in common with those other relationships where we experienced this. It's just the fact that we're talking about it that is triggering it, if that makes sense. So know that that's a, a completely warranted reason as well. But I'd be you know, curious about that. And if it is anxiety driven, you know, are there things that we can do to manage our anxiety? Do we need to consider medication as well as therapy? You know, what's going on? And also, again, I don't know if the goal is necessarily safety. I've talked about this in the past, but 
when it comes to trauma, and again, you didn't say that that's what's happening in your life, but for a lot of us feeling quote unquote safe actually causes us to be more triggered or feel more unsafe. And if you're one of those people, the goal isn't safety. The goal is neutrality. I mean, I don't feel safe or unsafe. I just feel in therapy. It's okay. Right. So just keep that in mind for any of you out there who are traumatized and experience things like this. But for those of you who aren't, feeling safe is something that we're going to have to learn how to do. And a lot of that can come with finding ways to soothe our system, because my guess would be that we get completely overstimulated in therapy, meaning maybe our emotions feel like they're running a mile a minute. And we, you know, there's so much coming up for us and so much happening internally that we feel overwhelmed right away and go into that hyper aware state as kind of a way to cope or to like force our brain onto something else. This could be a way to kind of distract us from what we're working on in therapy. And so in order for us to overcome that and start to feel safe, we're going to have to find ways to soothe. Now, this could be something as simple as putting a blanket over us. A lot of my patients feel really comfortable, like covering up, or maybe it's a fidget toy, or maybe we bring like a hot or cold drink with us to therapy. If your therapist allows like food in their office, I don't know of any that don't, but I mean, some people I've heard are funny. So Maybe we bring hot tea or coffee or an ice beverage or something like that. Or maybe we chew gum or there's a sucky candy or something that we can do to keep us grounded. Maybe we count colors. Maybe we rub on our arms or massage our hand while we talk. There can be a lot of different things we can do to kind of soothe, calm, and ground us during the session and get creative. You know, I've had a patient bring candles in with her every time and we would light them because they smelled like lavender and that was really soothing to her. You know, there's a lot of things we can do to use our senses to help us calm in session, but those are just a few ideas that I have when it comes to this hyper awareness that you're experiencing. Now, there was a comment on this and it says, as an add-on, why do you deal with lack or how do you deal? Sorry. How do you deal with lack of awareness in therapy? I tend to ramble on and forget what I'm actually talking, that I'm actually talking to someone or what I'm doing while I say it all. It's honestly the only way that I can talk about my trauma. Having someone else there makes it, I guess, real. And when they respond or say, mm-hmm, it freaks me out. It makes me regret why I ever said anything. How can you, or how, how can they help this? Now, I love this question because I had a ton, I've had a ton of patients and even viewers over the years tell me about this, but patients in my office who have a complete lack of awareness and that distance, there's a couple of things. First of all, it's a, a defense mechanism to have a distance between ourselves and painful stories. And so if we're talking about our trauma, that separation can be something that we we do to protect ourselves because it can be hard to not only admit that we went through a trauma and admit what happened, but to talk about it out loud with another person can just be too much. And so a lot of us can find it, it feels a little better, not 100% better, but a little bit better to pretend no one else is in the room and that we don't have any awareness of what's happening and that disconnection or that distance that we put between ourselves and the story is kind of protective. And so I would really, again, it's not really the symptom so much as like why we're doing it. So I'd let your therapist know that this is happening and let's get curious about it. Let's be curious about maybe what purpose this could serve for us. Are there other times in our life or situations, maybe really intense social situations where a lot of people are around? Do we do it then too? Or when, let's say we had to have a, a give up, I don't know, a presentation at work or last time we spoke, remember, maybe we were in speech class in school or something. Do we do it then as well? 
like where it's kind of out of body. Do we think this is kind of like dissociation in a way? It could be on that spectrum. I have a lot of questions and I really think that some of it's just figuring out where it's coming from and tracking that back. And then again, just like I said at the beginning, it's a, a lot about the resources and ability to calm ourselves down because your system, I'd assume, is overwhelmed. And talking about your trauma causes you to pull away, maybe dissociate to some percentage or at the very least, distance ourselves from it. And I'm really curious, you know, what we could do to help bring us back and keep us there. And that might mean that, again, like we have a blanket over us, we massage our hands, maybe we take breaks every so often and count colors, like how many things in the room are brown, purple, blue, whatever. Or do the A through Z of, you know, animals or A through Z of things in the room. We could do that every so often, like checking in. I think... Really, the reason that this ha is happening is it, it's a protective mechanism. And so we have to figure out why it thinks it's protecting us, what maybe some of the main triggers are. I think trauma is obviously one of them, but I would be curious about other things. Is it just overwhelmed to our system? Like a very stressful situation, does that do it? Be curious about it. We can learn. And then that can help us better know when to use these tools. So if we're building up all these resources, when do we use them? And, and knowing that having that information will help us know how how and when to utilize them. And now there was another uh, final add-on. It said spot on. I feel like I, I'm like this in other relationships as well. So not just like therapy, like the person who asked the main question. It makes it really hard for me to be 100% myself. Where does this come from and how can I change this? And there was also a comment at the end in these, in, um, below this question about gender dysphoria but since it doesn't really pertain to this question it wasn't added in so i just wanted to let you guys know i saw it but it, it didn't really pertain to this um itself so that would be something that you could ask separately now again it's going to come from different places for different people and i really think it's like a protective mechanism i think it's a defense mechanism that we're using to kind of distance ourselves from what happened or even distance ourselves from other people because that has the potential to harm us again. Like I talked about, you know, fawning and that fawn response. If we think that we need to do everything just right or act in this specific way, otherwise some, someone's going to harm us or hurt us again, we can people please to like an intense and extreme amount or fawn over someone in the hopes that then they won't do it anymore. And I think that, that we could do that in our not just our therapeutic relationship, but in other relationships where we can create this distance between ourselves and someone else. Again, kind of like that fawn response. It's like protective, right? If they don't really know me and I don't really let them in, then they can't really hurt me, right? We can have a lot of beliefs about things like that. And so overall, that's why it's happening to protect you so that you don't get hurt. You're kind of puffer fishing people. That's why I have all that wonderful puffer, puffer fish merch because a lot of us are soft and squishy and we don't want to get hurt again. So we shoot our spines out. And I think you doing this is, is kind of you shooting your spines out. And so I think it's it's something to bring up and talk about in therapy. And again, just digging into the why for you, like what triggers it, why it's happening. Are there other times in our life when this has happened? What do they have in common? And then obviously the most important is like finding ways to calm us down and soothe our system and let us know that we're going to be okay. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie, I'm wondering how to deal with anger and hurt over being emotionally, ne emotionally neglected as a child. I've been burying my trauma down for years, so I wouldn't have to deal with it. Join the club. Everybody does that. But have recently uncovered it all in therapy. 
Now that I'm aware of the abuse in my past and I understand why I act in certain ways, like my avoidant attachment style or clinging to authority figures, for example, I find myself being angry a lot of the time. I don't know how to deal with this knowledge and I feel like I'm hopeless to ever move on from it. How can I accept and grieve the childhood that I'll never get back? What a great question. And I would argue in some ways, most of us are grieving some part of our childhood that we wish went one way, but it went another because we had at best minimal control over it, right? And so I think there are a couple of things, um, a couple of tools and ways that I think you could work on this. And the first is making a list of the childhood things or the childhood that you wish you had. Let's take our time and make a list of that. Okay. Then on the flip side, we make a list of what actually took place. Okay. Then this third list or this kind of list between these two, you know, columns in the middle is what the difference is. So what things did we wish we had that we did not get? Now, this list might be the same as that list that we wish, but it might be different. There might be a few things that we got. Maybe we always had a roof over our head or we're always fed or, you know, had a good friend at school or something, you know, I don't know. Whatever it is, make that list. And then I want you to probably talk about it with your therapist would be best, but I think it's even beneficial for us just to take that list and to consider consider the emotions that come up with it and how we feel just looking at it and knowing we didn't get that. And it's not like a lot. I don't, I don't know how else to say this without being super therapisty, but just allowing yourself to feel it, to feel what comes up. Let yourself be angry. Let yourself cry because your anger is actually really telling. Anger is a super, super helpful emotion. It shows us that we've been wounded or there's potential for wounding. And because anger is defensive, it's a secondary emotion. It protects us, right? It's like that puffer fish. It's those spines. That's anger because inside is hurt and maybe disappointment or pain, right? Suffering, but that doesn't feel good. Nobody wants to acknowledge that we feel that way. So instead we're like, yeah, I'm angry. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, right? We can just want to burn it all down. And that's just us protecting ourselves from the intense emotion we feel. And so I would encourage you to consider another emotion. Okay, yes, we're angry. I agree, you very, you have every right to be angry, but what else? What else do you feel? That is part of that grieving process is tapping into that. And then my second tip and one that I know a lot of you find helpful but hate doing it because it's really difficult work is that inner child work in therapy. And the way that it could apply here is that we could write letters to ourselves. Like what, what, at what age do we think, or do we have the most, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, the most clear memory or, or something in our, like whatever year of our life where like can recall maybe a really specific time, like what we were wearing, who we were, where we were maybe something that happened, maybe our parent neglecting us and not being there. Like um, one of my patients had had this memory of being in the nurse's office at school and calling their mom and the mom saying like, essentially suck it up buttercup. I'm not coming to get you. And that was like a really wounding experience. And because she actually was sick. I mean, I played sick all the time, but this was not that scenario Um, anyways. And so that was the one that we would go back to that time you know, I'd have her write letters to and from that that age of her. And I know that sounds kind of woo-woo and it's kind of hard to get behind, but I promise you, once you start 
it gets easier. These letters don't have to be really long. They don't have to get into a ton of detail. It can be more like, let's say I'm writing a letter to eight-year-old Katie. It can help to have a photo of yourself at that age, by the way. So let's say I get this photo out and I'm like, oh my God, those bangs were terrible because I had a bowl cut, I think, at that age. Whole haircut was bad. But okay, so it was actually called a page boy haircut. Anybody remember those? Anyway, I got my ears pierced when I got that haircut and that was my mom wanted to cut my hair short. And so the concession was I got my ears pierced. Let's get back on track, Katie. <laughs> Anyways, I'd look at a photo of myself at that age and I would, I would say, you know, hi, younger Katie. I know that you're getting teased at school and people call you a tomboy or whatever. You know, I got called that a lot growing up and uh, I don't even know. I know that you're feeling alone in it and I know that, you know, you wish you had more classes with your best friend, Jamie, right? I, I don't have like a specific thing that happened to me at that point in my life, but we're going to pick a time in your life when you know that something did happen. And then I want you to go back in that time and, and talk to little you and say, you know, I want you to know that it's hard now, but we're okay. Things turn out okay. And that, you know, Jamie moves away and you you continue to stay friends with her and she is lovely. And don't worry, you get good grades that year. So don't stress, you know, whatever it can be. Talk to yourself, offer some support and guidance and love or the things that you wish your parents had given you, offer that to younger you. And then as younger you, so we've done that way, now we need to write from younger you to adult us. What do we wanna tell us? What do we, what do we wanna talk about? What do we wish people heard? Maybe, you know, what's the thing that we wish an adult would listen to us about? Like, let's go there. And so doing that work, I really think can help you grieve and accept. And grief is fucking terrible. I'm not here to tell you. I'm not going to pretend that it's easy and linear. Yes, there's stages of grief. Do we go in order? Absolutely not. It's more we jump around and we can start. I, I always think anger is first, but maybe that's just me. I think is denial first, they say. I didn't go through denial I went through anger, then denial. So anyway, you're probably in that anger stage and that's okay. In order to move through some of the stages, again, back and forth and they'll pop up at time. And sometimes I still get angry about my dad not being here. So don't think that you, once you've grieved this childhood, that you can't still be upset about it. Do you know what I mean? Because grief is complicated. And yes, I'm, I'm talking about the loss of my dad when I talk about grief, but just know that grief comes in all shapes and forms. That's just my experience. So that's just some of, some of my thoughts. Those are some of my thoughts and some of my feedback. I hope that it's helpful. I hope there's like a little morsel in there for you that can get you through and help you move past this because it is hard work. It is difficult, but it does get better. Okay. Now there was a comment on this that said, Hen, how do you deal with overprotective parents who won't let you say that all this protection just hurt you? and didn't provide a place where you could empty yourself and be loved. I'm digging up these traumas in therapy right now, and it seems like the more I understand about what I need to heal my wounds, the more my parents are adamant about any changes, including making fun of me when I change my behavior. Ooh, I'm trying to get out of the house and move out, but I feel um, feel like just running away from this reality isn't going to cure me. It won't, you are correct. I feel angry all the time and often hurt myself so that anger is a physical pain. I have always had a hard time getting attached to people and only now in therapy have I finally been able to start talking about everything that I had to put up with to be here. Great question. Now, the truth about all of this work that we're going to do to heal from, you know, the shit our parents put us through, it doesn't have to include them at all. And to be honest, we can't control how other people 
are around us, how they react, what they say, if they accept it or not, or if they say that how we feel is warranted. We can't control any of that. And so honestly, my encouragement for you would be to move out, not to run away. We're not going to run away because wherever we go, there we are and our problems follow us. It's like, it's like luggage. You can't put it down. It just comes with you. And so I, but I think getting out of that toxic environment will be helpful and allow for the healing to occur more quickly without running into these landmines of invalidation and gaslighting. And so I think moving out is good And here. And I would really, really, really encourage you to not talk to your parents about this. I know we want them to maybe, we hope that they would say, I'm so sorry. You know, I did the best I could, but I understand that wasn't good at all. You know, or I wish I'd been better at doing X, Y, or Z. I'm so sorry that that hurt you. I know we have those wishes. I know. I wish every parent would take some fucking responsibility for being the trash that they were at the time. Not all parents are trash, but some of them are. And some of them need to say sorry. But alas, we cannot control other people. We can't force someone to see the error of their ways. People see things the way they want to see them. And some parents refuse to even consider or entertain the idea that they didn't do things perfectly, especially kind of the helicopter overprotective parents, because they're like, I put in all this extra effort and work. You should be grateful. I, I've had so many parents in my office be like, this is just disrespectful. You should be grateful for all that I did for you. And I'm like, uh, sure, grateful for like basic need things, but uh, you're really fucked up here, you know? And so I say all of that because we can't control them. We can't make them be better, do better, especially if they're a narcissist, they're incapable of apology. And so it, it's kind of like that grieving is going to be more important for you. It's going to help you heal more and knowing and, and kind of grieving the fact that you won't ever get that apology you know, I think writing letters from younger self to older self will be part of that healing. What I said to the first part of this question is really going to be the answer for this aside from like not in, like I would encourage you not to engage in conversation with your parents about this. And if they make fun of you for change behavior, you can say something, say something to the effect of, I don't understand why you're making fun of me. That's really hurtful when I'm trying to to better myself and feel better, Right. We can push back. I think that's fine. Or we can just ignore them because that's honestly the amount of energy that I would like you to put into that relationship right now, because it sounds incredibly toxic and abusive. And that kind of, you know, manipulation, gaslighting and abuse is just nothing healthy can come out of that. And so I would just, that's why moving out would be better. Again, wherever we go, there we are. So it's not like us moving out. It's going to mean that we don't have any problems anymore. But I do think that putting that space in between, you know, you and your parents is going to help you in that healing process. Okay. Now there was another comment that said, additionally, how can you learn to forgive your family for not being in a place to meet your needs, especially if you're trying to repair the relationships and how I'm I'm just going to keep going because we have another one. It says, and how do you deal with the anger you have against your parents due to abuse, parentification, and emotional neglect? While I hate what she did to me, I also have empathy for her because of her mental health issues. It doesn't justify what she did to me. Um, That had to be my parents, therapist and best friend that she abused me repeatedly. Can the relationship that was broken due to a continued abuse be repaired if some of the abusive behavior still remains? And then the final one says, as an add-on, what if I have accepted the emotional neglect of my childhood, but I still can't seem to get a grip on the symptoms? Now, there's a lot here, but forgiving family 
So there's a couple things. So the first part's about like, if you, especially if you're trying to repair the relationship, I want you to think really long and hard about whether or not the relationship is beneficial to you. I know as a society, as a world, we put a lot of emphasis on continuation of familial relationships, but if there was abuse and if they have not changed and they have not apologized and they're not working with you, both of you should be working together to make the relationship better. If they're not doing those things, it doesn't serve any purpose for you to try to repair the relationship. There's no relationship to repair. Repairing it in the, those kinds of situations means that you're eating all the crow and you're the one doing all the work. And I'm here to tell you that one-sided relationships are not healthy and will never be healthy and will never feel good and won't give us what we actually need out of relationships. It's super, super toxic. So I'd encourage you to hit the brakes, okay? But when we give forgiveness, talk a little bit about forgiveness because so often we think forgiveness means condoning behavior or acceptance of what happened. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is something we actually give to help ourselves. We forgive others so that we don't have to keep thinking about it, feeling badly about it and being upset. So we can offer forgiveness without saying that it was okay for them to do what they did. And that's the kind of forgiveness that we're gonna have to offer if we're able. Not everybody's at that point. I think sometimes we're still caught in that anger cycle and we need to find an outlet. We need to find a way to talk about how angry we are, get some validation. Usually this is in therapy. We need to find a way to express the hurt and the disappointment that we feel or any other emotion we may feel. Journaling can help with that and obviously therapy as well. Talking it out, processing it, and then letting it go. And that's really the forgiveness. Again, it's not saying what you did was okay. It's not saying that having a relationship just like that again is going to be something we want. That forgiveness is something we offer to ourselves so that we don't continue to harm ourselves with what took place. Does that make sense? I hope so. And I have a whole video about, I bet if you just look up on YouTube, Katie Morton forgiveness, you'll find it. Um, I have quite a few about forgiveness and, and it's complicated, right? Those are my thoughts for that. And then, yeah, be careful about repairing the relationships and be, you know, aware of whether or not it's worth it. Be honest with yourself. And then the anger that you have against your parents due to abuse or parentification, emotional neglect, I think a lot of it's just giving ourselves an outlet to feel it. Like I said, talking about it in therapy, writing about it, and acknowledging that there are underlying emotions, things like disappointment and pain and and hurt and, uh, I don't know, maybe sadness and even, I don't know, it could be any number of things, right? There's a lot of emotions that anger can hide. And so I think d digging into that and figuring out what, what you're truly feeling will be helpful and allow for that release. And then... It says, while I hate what she did to me, I also have empathy for her. You can still have empathy. Just because someone was abusive doesn't mean we have to hate them and think that they're a terrible person. We can just hate what they did and think that what they did to us was terrible, right? We can still feel for them. If they had mental health issues and we're like, you know, I understand now as an adult, like my mom was bipolar and when she was manic, she was super impulsive and abusive. Does that mean that we can't understand it. No. Does that mean that we can't also have PTSD and be really fucking pissed about what happened? No. Those things can exist simultaneously. But I think that if if any abusive behavior still remains, the relationship cannot be repaired. And I would encourage you to remove yourself from any relationship where any kind of abusive behavior is still remaining. That's not a healthy place for you. Get out. I give you full permission. Cut off contact if you have to. 
I don't care if you're related, that doesn't make it okay. Just because we're blood relatives doesn't give people carte blanche to treat us however they want. We're all human. We need to have mutual respect and love for each other. And it's pretty fucked up, right? So no, no, it, you cannot repair anything if there's still abusive behavior. And then the last component said, what if accept, um, what if I've accepted the emotional neglect in my childhood, but I still can't keem to, seem to get a grip on the symptoms. Keep digging into them. Keep talking to them. I think that inner child work, writing letters back and forth from, from younger you to you now will really help you manage it. And acceptance of what happened can be different from processing it and allowing ourselves to feel it. Maybe not. Maybe you've done all that, but that's why I think that work will really move it along. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This says, Hey Katie, are there ever times when anxiety legitimately has no cause? Oh yeah. All the time. I've recently started therapy and have been exploring the causes of my anxiety. And in some cases I can identify what is causing it, but other times it feels like there is no cause. I'll be fine one minute, then all of a sudden feel anxious and nothing has changed. And oftentimes the anxiety will just kind of stay there. I've gone over when this um, happens and there doesn't seem to be an anxious thought running through my head or anything in my environment that can be causing it. Yet, I still feel anxious. I could be watching TV, relaxing, or in the middle of my workday, or some days I'll just wake up and the anxiety will be there. That son of a bitch. The anxiety just seems so random and like it literally has no cause. Does there always need to be a cause or does that cause need to be known for me to quote unquote get better? Or is there a way for me to decrease this anxiety without knowing the why? Wonderful question. Anxiety most of the time, meaning more than 50% of the time, doesn't have a cause at all. And the cause really could be something like, um, I didn't eat well yesterday or I didn't get enough sleep. And so I'm just more vulnerable to my emotions and my life experience. And so I, I might've been able to like be resilient and not let it pull me in, but I'm a little more vulnerable. So it pulled me in. Also, I think there's this misunderstanding when it comes to mental illnesses that there's always a reason. I mean, with some of them there are right. Like PTSD has to have a trauma. We have to have been traumatized. Okay. So there has to be kind of a, a root of the why, but anxiety and depression and other mental illnesses like OCD, there's not always a why. Sometimes it's just genetic. And I know that answer sucks and I hate it just as much as you do. But sometimes, especially when it comes to depression and anxiety, there's not always a trigger or a reason. It's like our brain all of a sudden is like, oh, I'm a little short on dopamine. Depression hits, right? Or, oh, I have a little bit of extra, you know, dopamine. Oh, let's get into paranoia. You know, it just pushes us by what's happening in our brain. Now, anxiety is like close cousins with depression. So any movement in our serotonin or dopamine, we could feel some symptoms of anxiety. Or if we have an overactive, you know, limbic system, meaning like our amygdala and all of that because of past traumas or past um, anxiety attacks, right? The more it happens, the more likely it is to happen. And then the worry that we're going to have, it makes it even worse. And so it could be just that. And we could have been born with a larger amygdala maybe, right? There's a lot of things that we don't know enough about other than the fact that we do know that there is a genetic component. People can be born or not born with a predisposition for anxiety, and there's not always a why as to like why and when it pops up. And I wish I had a better answer, but that's why having some resources and tools like those coping skills I'm always talking about to help us like calm our system down or pull us out of that anxiety. I don't know. I kind of want to call it like it's, it's, it's like an anxiety spiral or 
uh, I don't know, like a tidal wave that kind of washes us out. To pull us out of that, we're going to have to have some tools and resources and things that we can do. I find a full body shake is pretty effective for me when my thoughts start to race for no reason or I start to just feel like overheated. Like my anxiety can come in like a sweaty, stressful, like sweaty palms and back kind of way. Ugh, hate it. Full body shake almost helps me every time. Calling a friend, have some coping skills that you can utilize because that's really the best way to manage it right now. And then if it is really burdensome and you find it really impairing your ability to function, we can consider medication too. You could talk to a psychiatrist, get your options, ask all your questions about side effects and things like that, but that could help you too. And you do not have to know where your anxiety is coming from in order to manage it. We just have to have those tools and resources and ways that we can better calm down. It does help when there is a trigger to identify it and do things to better manage that. But that, again, it's just not always the case. So do it when you can. But most of the time, I find over 50% of the time, it's nothing. We don't know. And we have to tap into those resources. Okay, now there was a comment on this and it says follow up. Hopefully this is staying on topic. How do you learn to recognize anxiety triggers when anxiety seems to be your norm? That can be really difficult. And I think to be truthful, the first thing to do is to find those soothing or coping skills that work for you and do those so that we can bring our anxiety level a little bit down, like out of that norm that we're used to. And that will allow us then to see what the triggers are, not the other way around. So it's almost like for if anxiety is our norm and we feel like we're anxious most days, all day, then we're not going to be able to know unless it pushed us into a panic attack, then maybe we could track back the trigger, but we're going to have to get that level down so that then we can see things more clearly. And so that would be the kind of, you know, switching the order of what we're working on. And then another question said, me too, except I also have a hard time getting up from bed in the morning, which I do, but I always am late and I take a shower, which I do 99% of my days. Anyways, I suffer from being unemotional. Nothing makes me sad or laugh or happy. Oh, we're disconnected. Anyways, um, oh, and I also constantly feel the need to move my lips or say something or sing. Hmm, maybe that's part of your anxiety or maybe OCD. I often have a song stuck in my head. I hope you have a tip for me, Katie. I do enjoy your AKA podcast and keep going back to old ones and replaying them. When it comes to this, I have a lot of questions. I think seeing a psychiatrist and a therapist to be properly assessed would give us some more answers, I guess. But I think like I said, anxiety and depression are like really close to each other. And they, from what we know, they believe they reside in the similar part of the brain. I always call them like second cousins or like best friends. They kind of hang out together. And so the getting up from bed, I think could be something that your depression is causing you. And that's what makes you late and, you know, makes everything seem like a struggle. But then the, and the unemotional or disconnection I'd argue is, is part of depression. I'm, it might be depression that you're feeling. But I, you know, again, I'm not 100% sure. I'd want you to take like a Beck depression scale just to see. But I think that that's where that's coming from. And that disconnect, that that unemotional feeling like I don't feel anything is a, is a defense mechanism. If we can find some ways to soothe our system and help us feel better, that urge to throw up that wall and shut down emotions will slowly go away. Again, it's going to take some time and effort. But just knowing that that's what it is, and if we work to soothe our system, that defense mechanism no longer serves a purpose, right? So it's easier to break it down. Um, keeping that in mind should hopefully move you in the right direction and keep you motivated. Okay, ready? We'll move on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie and community. How long can you keep bringing up the same issue until a therapist would decide to change things up or change the form of therapy altogether? Does it mean that you failed as a patient? 
Great question. Now, if we're working on, there's a lot of information that isn't in this question because I'm, I'm curious, like, do you mean you've been working on it in therapy and it just continues to be an issue and you're like, how long until they're like, I give up or we try something different? That's how I'm ta- reading this. And if it's different and I'm wrong, you let me know. But as a therapist, if a patient, if I've been trying the same tools with a patient for two or three sessions and we're not getting anywhere, I change it up. Sometimes I don't even wait that long. Sometimes it's like one week. If they're like, that homework was too hard, I couldn't do it. Or they like do the homework and it doesn't make anything better. And they're like, these coping skills are bullshit, Katie. They're not helping me at all. I immediately change direction. I may, um, because I, when I was in Santa Monica, I used to meet up with a group of other psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists. I would meet up with them and we would discuss difficult cases. It was, we called it the journal club, but it was really just like peer support. And I would have brought this up with them and gotten hopefully some thoughts from them about like different modalities or different uh, treatment options or maybe medications. I should refer them to the psychiatrist, you know, I would talk with them about it and and change things up. Or if they didn't have any ideas, because that happens sometimes, right? Then I would do my own research and potentially maybe refer you out or have you try EMDR a little bit while we continue to work together. You know, there's a lot of different things that we can try to do, but I wouldn't wait more than a week or two of trying one type to move on to another. And I don't think, I, I mean, maybe other people would disagree, but I don't think you can ever fail at therapy if you're showing up and you're trying, that's it. That's just that. Those are the prerequisites. I've only had patients, and I wouldn't even say they failed at therapy. I just think they weren't ready. I've had patients like not do the homework, cancel all the time, show up super late. Like I had this patient for years. It would show up like a half an hour late. So we'd have like 20 minutes together. So all we were doing every time was just catching up on how his life was and what was happening with work. And we never got into anything. And so when things like that happen, as a therapist, it's, it's my job to call it out and to say, you know what, I feel like we're getting some resistance here and maybe we're just not ready for therapy. Do you want to take a break? And in most, I'd say like 70% of the time, my patients will say, yeah, I'm okay with taking a break. Like that one that was showing up really late was like, yeah, I'm not sure if I really need to come anymore. And I was like, okay, you know that you can always just stop. We don't have to do this like you coming late and not getting enough time in because then it's a waste of your time and money, you know, to even come here. And so we had to talk about that. But when it comes to like not feeling better or not feeling like you're moving along, you're not failing. Your therapist in a way is is kind of failing you if you're trying and it's not improving. And we kind of need to maybe get some more referrals. So overall, I don't feel like you can ever fail as a patient as long as you're showing up and you're trying. And then someone asked, I'm curious about this too. I suspect you never really fail as a patient. I agree. Yes. What would that even mean? I feel like I just addressed that. Is it possible to be in therapy for a while before you even hit the root of an issue? Yes. It depends on how deeply hidden it is and what we think the problem is versus what the problem really is. I've had patients come in for anxiety we work for like six, eight months on their anxiety only to learn that what's actually happening is, you know, trauma, PTSD or an eating disorder or self-injury because we didn't even get to talking about that yet. And then, you know, maybe there's a repressed memory that comes out. There's a lot of reasons it can take a while to, to get to the root of the issue. And this says, um, due to maybe your own anxiety about bringing stuff up, 100%, very, very common. I feel like I've done that a little bit because I maybe talk around the issue, but didn't get to the heart of it. And my therapist seemed to not totally understand where I was coming from since I wasn't sharing enough information. 
I feel like I'm doing better with that, but it's like a super slow process because I'm not someone who easily opens up to people to begin with. It's like the more times I see her and the more I have positive interactions with her to build on so I can tell myself that she's not going to judge me about whatever it is I feel nervous about sharing with her. I sometimes wonder if she gets frustrated with me for being so slow at this, or maybe it's normal. I've had like eight sessions with her over four months. That's totally normal. You don't need to judge yourself. Truly, everybody's different, but the number of patients I've had over the years who take forever to open up, I feel like even my patients, it's like 90 to 100%, just throwing that out there, like guesstimation. But even my patients who come in, like I've had tons of patients who come in with an issue. Let's say I had a patient come in with like anorexia and they're like, I have an eating disorder. I've been in treatment a couple of times. It really sucks and it's back, right? So I feel like they're telling me everything. They're like, oh yeah, my dad abused me when I was a kid. And they think that's the reason. Even those patients still struggle to tell me what's really going on. Sure, you could say, well, Katie, those are the roots of the issues. Those are the big issues. I want to know more about how you feel. Why did treatment not work for you those times? What happened with between you and your dad? And have you worked on that, you know, processing that trauma? What else, you know, has gone on in your life? You've been in other abusive situations. There's still a lot to uncover. And it's very, very, very normal for that to take us a while. It takes us time to trust someone to, with our deepest, darkest stuff. And it can, you know, overall, it's normal. Don't worry about it. She's not frustrated. Your therapist is right along, right there with you. Just, you know, working with you at your own pace. She's going to challenge you. But again, we don't want to push people too, you know, too far, too fast. And yeah, overall, you're not so slow. You're just going at your pace and it's all good. Okay. And you've only had eight sessions. That's like not that many sessions at all. Let's move on to question number five. It says, hey, Katie, how do I learn to let myself be cared for? Ooh, it's a good one. I can be very loving and caring to others, but as soon as other people do anything for me, I get anxious and I want to run away. I don't feel worthy of care. And I worry that if I accept support, I will relax too much and they'll let me down. Oh, mm -hmm. this results in me holding people at a distance, being super independent and never really feeling like I can lean on other people. Got it. I want to be more, or I want to have more balanced give and take relationships, but I'm so scared. Please help. P.S. I hope you're doing amazingly. I am. Thank you. Now, this one's tricky. And the first part about it is to understand where this is coming from. My guess would be people in your life have let you down. Maybe we've been abused as a child or we had a caregiver who was completely unpredictable, showed up sometimes, didn't show up the other times, or even when they were there, they weren't emotionally available, right? A lot of different reasons we can hold people at a distance. And I would like you to be curious about that so that you can figure out where this is coming from for you, because that will just help us better understand ourselves. There's something about like going deep inside ourselves and having that like aha moment where we realize like, holy shit, I've been doing that because my mom did this or my dad did that. And then that was the way I processed it. And so that's what I keep telling myself. Like there's something magical about that moment where we realize why we have this pattern. Cause you see the pattern. You don't let people care for you. It's hard to let people in. We think they're going to let us down. We have this pattern. Where did it come from? Where did it start? Why is this the story that we tell ourselves? Because the story you're telling yourself is if I let someone in, they're just going to hurt me. If I allow someone to actually care for me, I'm going to you know, start depending on them and no good can come from that, right? We have these thoughts and these stories we keep telling ourselves. And so I'd encourage you to be curious about where that story started. Who told it to us the first time or when did we tell it to ourselves the first time? That's helpful to know. But here's kind of the work. So, the, I mean, that's already work. So let's not pretend that's not work, but 
the homework then, once we kind of have a greater understanding of it, would be to pick one person that we care for, that cares for us, only at a distance, right? So they care for us, but not too close. Pick one person that we think, based on as much knowledge as we can pull, we think that they'll be a good candidate for us to try this out on, because we're going to have to try. And then we slowly let people in while simultaneously working in therapy to calm us down from pushing them away because we can't puffer fish everybody in our lives then nobody's close to us and we feel alone and then we're just a sad fish right we have to let people get close and you're going to have those urges to stick the spines out yeah no and i personally do this also i have always had this fear in romantic relationships for some reason, that if I let someone get too close to actually know me, and I know where it comes from. I had this boyfriend in high school that really hurt me real bad. It took me a long time to like heal and which I know people will be like, well, that's kind of silly, but it was just, it was me. And I dated him for like five years. I was devastated. And so anyways, that relationship and the pain that I felt made me think that letting people get close to me like that and get to know me that way was never safe because then I could be hurt like that again. And I didn't think I could survive it. Right. I was like, oh, that emotional toll, still processing it. Can't handle another one. Right. But over time, letting people in little by little people who deserve to feel kind of safe, right. That they'd proven that they weren't going to be big dickwads up front. And again, we're not going all the way in, Something that helped me in my therapy was creating like a, a level, almost like, you know, people say, oh, people are like, it's from that Shrek movie, the, I think the first one, where it's like, people are like onions, right? There's layers. What are your layers of what you're going to let people know? Like the outside layer be something like, I, I don't mind people knowing what I do for a living or um, knowing about my family, like who they are or some of my hobbies. Okay. So that's like people at work. That's what they know. Then the next layer might be like, I don't mind telling some people like if I'm having a bad day, I don't get into specifics, but I don't mind letting people in a little bit. Then the next layer might be like, I don't mind telling these people like some of the things that, you know, I'm struggling with now. And we go a layer deeper. Maybe I don't mind telling someone the things that I struggled with as a kid and how my upbringing was, right? So we're just working our way in and I'm just making those things up. Your levels and your layers are going to be different. That was just like, off the top of my head. But that can give us an idea of how to let people in little by little, all the while, again, recognizing our urge to stick our spines out and push people away. And it's kind of that opposite action, which yes, I know personally, I've experienced it. It's really fucking hard, but I'm here to tell you that you can do it. And through practice, you slowly prove to yourself, just like it was proved to you the other time that it actually was hurtful. We're proving now that it's not so hurtful and we can actually count on people and they can care for us and it can be a beautiful, wonderful thing. But it just takes time, little layer by layer, step by step. Allow yourself the time to let people in gradually and also allow them the time to prove to you that they are worth it. Okay? There was a comment on this and it says, and how can I learn to care for myself? My parents didn't really look out for me and they were busy trying to deal with their own own issues while I was neglected because I didn't act out like my three siblings. And I didn't even talk about my own severe mental health issues. So I got used to being lonely with my overwhelming emotions when I was a teenager. Now I have difficulties with calming and soothing myself as I've never had anybody holding and comforting me when I was crying. I'm so sorry. They did support me with getting help from outside, when I rarely spoke about getting worse, but they didn't give me any emotional support themselves and they weren't really there for me. 
is this my fault because I didn't communicate clearly? No, 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 no. And I needed this from them and it was not clear about how badly I was really doing. My mother used to complain about having to visit my sister regularly in the hospital. So when I was in the hospital once due to my suicidality, I didn't allow her to visit me. My dad visited me once and that was good. But when he was supposed to pick me up and bring me home in the morning after a week, he kind of messed up a little and he totally forgot about me. Holy fuck. Talk about traumatizing as he had to work thing, a work thing on that day. And finally came in the evening at a late hour. I had to leave the room in the morning and wait all day in the waiting room for him while being alone, bored, embarrassed, and terrified with the thought of going back home. Sometimes I feel like they don't care about me at all. So how can you develop a healthy amount of self-worth and feel like you're lovable if your caretakers don't give a fuck about you? First of all, I'm so sorry that your parents were so incredibly neglectful and know that's not your fault. Yes, we can communicate with people in our lives about what's going on and how we're doing, but the fact that you didn't doesn't mean that they can be that neglectful and harmful because if they actually cared and were around and spent time with you and weren't so preoccupied with their own shit or the stuff that your siblings were going through, they would have, you know, made time to connect. And that wouldn't have been something you, like as a child, we cannot be expected to ask for that from our parents. It should be something that they give to us when we're in distress, right? If you're a parent and your child is distressed, you reach out and you try to support them and love them. That's it. And so overall, the question of how do you learn to care for yourself? I think the the best way or my best advice for this is to to consider what that even means to you. Because sometimes we have these ideas like, oh, caring for myself, self-care, I should be doing that, right? Yeah, that makes me better. I should be doing that. What does that look like? What does it mean for you to care for yourself and to do things that you need? What does that look like? What is it that you that you are needing and wanting? Tell me about that. Write about it. What's it look like? Because once we know that, then we can break down small ways, small tasks and things that we can do to help ourselves heal. Now, this could be anything from, let's say, we always, I mean, this is just, I, I probably given examples like this in the past, but it's like, let's say we always wished our parents took us to Disneyland and they never did. And they kept saying that they would, and they just let us down. So as an adult, can we schedule and plan a trip to take ourselves to Disneyland? I know that's a weird example, but I'm just saying, what does it look like for you to be cared for when it comes to that emotional support or them caring and listening to you, obviously, or hopefully you're in therapy, if not get into therapy, because that's one way you can care for yourself and you can ensure that someone is there to listen and support. And then can we journal about how we're feeling? And then the kicker is when we have journaled, can we put one validating statement into each entry? Meaning something like, I have a right to feel this way because blah, blah, blah. Or it's okay for me to feel sad because I didn't get what I needed from my parents, right? Can we offer ourselves some compassion, some validation and work to do that each and every day? Even if you don't journal, can you offer yourself one validating statement? That's really where I would start because we have to slowly build that up, slowly come to terms with who we are, what self-care, what caring for ourselves really looks like and feels like and allowing ourselves or accepting I guess it's learning to accept our experience and how we are trying to process it versus, you know, that constant, like, because if we were neglected emotionally, we can talk, talk down to ourselves, think that it's our fault. We have all that shame and guilt and embarrassment, and we've got to stop that in its tracks. Okay. I know that that's, there's a lot, 
mean, I could talk about that more, but I want to keep it kind of succinct so I don't overwhelm you. So I hope that that is helpful. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie, this is a heavy one. Okay, so trigger warning, guys, that we talk about suicide here. I worked the front desk at a hotel, and unfortunately, we had a guest commit suicide in-house this week. I'm so sorry. I was the person to check them in, and I was the last person to see them alive. I was one of the people who assessed the condition of the room after the body had been removed. As you can imagine, this has been difficult to deal with. I've been in therapy for the past five years, and I just started EMDR about six months ago. I've made a lot of progress, but I can't stop thinking. That could have been me. I don't feel suicidal or depressed as much anymore. My anxiety and depression are still in the car, but I'm the one behind the wheel and driving now. I love that analogy. I'm also in school to become a therapist, and I didn't notice any signs at check-in, which has really planted a seed of doubt within me. I'm here to tell you, I wouldn't have either. People who don't want to be helped, who feel in that hopeless, helpless spot, will not show any signs. And that's not your job as the hotel front desk person, right? That's their therapist's job or their best friend or family's you know, job is to notice the signs and symptoms and to talk to them about it and to maybe tell somebody about it, okay? Says, I even gave them a discount at check-in because they were so kind. I could ask specifically, but I was wondering more generally, when a potentially traumatic experience occurs, what are some positive signs that we can look for along the way to know if we're processing this and absorbing it in a healthy way without rushing your healing and still allowing yourself to sit with your feelings? Also, do you have any words of advice on how to manage these barriers in our own healing? Thank you for all that you do. To be honest, the best thing that we can do is just keep talking about it. And I know... Sometimes we can feel like, but I don't want to think about it anymore. I don't want to talk about it. Fight that urge. That's the urge to like stuff it down and just push forward to like white knuckle life. And I'm here to tell you that when it comes to potentially traumatic experiences, when they first happen, like you're already in therapy, you're already doing EMDR. I would spend a session. Oh, sorry. I hit my ring on the table. I would spend at least one session talking through exactly what happened and how you felt about it and all of those doubtful thoughts and I should have known something and all of the 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 guilt and the maybe even the shame or whatever that you're experiencing even the triggering part of it for you where you're like that could have been me but I'm not even actively suicidal let's talk that out utilize your resources to process it through now because I'm here to tell you that when it comes to trauma we know that the sooner oh, sorry my nose is really itchy the sooner we work on it the more quickly it'll go away so the sooner you Start talking about what took place and all that that brought up for you, the sooner you won't have any of those trauma experiences or symptoms, really. That's just the truth. And so take the time, you know, to process it through. I know you might be like, but I want to work on my own stuff in therapy. And like, why did this have to happen? Yes, we can be pissed. We can be frustrated. This is not comfortable. It, it's It's horrible. And it sucks that you had to even see that person. This even happened. I feel bad for everybody involved. But spend some time doing it now because that will be what ends up saving you in the end. It's that stuffing down and pushing forward that gives us more of the PTSD symptoms. Truthfully, if we process through something that just happened and it takes us, let's say, I don't know, three or four weeks to kind of talk it through and be okay with it. So it's not emotionally charged, right? We can not ever develop PTSD. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Okay. 
Now, there was a comment on this as someone with an extensive trauma history already. What are the best things to do when a potentially new trauma occurs in our lives so that it's not another thing added to the list of unprocessed yucky stuff? Exactly what I said. Process it through now. Talk about it now. Even if other stuff seems more pressing, like, well, I was just digging into, I don't care. Now is the time. The sooner, the better. I know it seems... It can seem silly and we can think like, oh, this isn't that big of a deal or this isn't as bad as the things. I don't care. It's a big deal. It's upsetting you. It's a trauma and we need to process it. And the sooner we start talking about it, the sooner it'll be okay. And you might even be surprised I've had some patients in EMDR process through like one thing that just happened and it actually helps process an old thing at the same time. And Alexa's made mention of this where she talks about how sometimes traumas are like stored in the same part of the brain, which I read if you haven't read my new book, Traumatize, I talk about it a lot in there um, about the brain. It was really fascinating. And they hypothesized that like the hippocampus might be a place where trauma memories are stored. Stored. There's a, a couple others that they talk about. But anyway, and they being researchers, I just, you know, read it and then tried to turn it into basic people language for the book. But anyway, so if we're digging into one, we might work on another. So it's not time lost. It'll be time well spent so that we don't develop any more symptoms of PTSD. Now, there was one more question on this and it says, I can relate. I work as a case manager in mental health. And about a year ago, a young woman who I had previously worked with was and was fairly close to died by suicide. Then a few weeks later, another client in the program that I didn't know died by suicide. And over the last year, a couple of kids a few years younger than me in the small town that I grew up in and an older friend died by suicide. I haven't been acti- actively suicidal in several years, but I'm getting overwhelmed with the most recent one. I, uh, the recent one I had, that exact same thought that that could have been me. Or what if it was me? What would people be posting on social media about me or saying about me to each other? It's really a really deep and sad thing to think about. And it made me a bit passively suicidal in the moment. It really does seem to throw a wrench in the healing process that is supposed to be happening. I also do EMDR. Katie, what are your thoughts on this? Having people around us, even just one person, die by suicide is super triggering. And if we've ever had suicidal thoughts or ever been in a depressive episode, it can draw those out and cause us to think like that. That's just normal. But again, the sooner we can talk about this, the sooner we can process it, the better. Bring it up in therapy. Talk about how you're feeling. Write out each one of these suicides that you felt somewhat connected to and let's process it. If you're doing EMDR, I think EMDR is a great place to bring this. You can talk through all that came up for you and what you know about each and every case. I know we can think like, you know, again, like it's not that big of a deal or it didn't really happen to us or why am I struggling so much with this? Stop with the judgmental thoughts. It's not a time to judge. It's a time to talk about it and process it so that we feel better more quickly and that these suicidal thoughts, even if they're passive, go away. It's normal to be triggered. It's normal to feel overwhelmed. This person has had a lot of death by suicide in their life. And so the sooner you talk about it, the better. Bring it up, talk about it. It is a big deal. You're not overreacting. It's upsetting and we need to to process it through so that it doesn't continue to affect us, okay? Moving on to question number seven. This question says, hi, Katie. Is there a point in time when it's been long enough of dealing with childhood trauma that you won't ever get over it? I feel like I've talked about it with a therapist and a doctor and even my husband, but I don't feel any better. I'm still very upset and angry about it all, and it doesn't seem to stop. Will it ever stop or will it always be with me like this? Thank you. Now, 
Someone left a very kind and thoughtful long comment as an answer to this, and I loved it. And the truth about it is it's kind of, they answered it almost exactly the way that I would answer it. Now, the truth about this is that talk therapy only works for about 40% of people. So 60% of people don't find it to be effective. That's a lot. It's crazy. It's in my book. I wrote it in there somewhere. I remember because that, that fact blew my mind. It's in the chapter about different treatment options. But anyways, so only 40% of people find resolution of their trauma symptoms through talk therapy. And what does that mean? That means that we need to do something else. Talk therapy's gotten you so far, but it's still bothering you and you don't like it and we want it to go away. Can it go away? 100% yes, it can. Okay, but we're going to need to try things like EMDR, somatic experiencing. Maybe we need some vagus nerve stimulation. We can talk to our doctor about that. Maybe we need medication. Have you tried medication? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Should we try a different medication? Should we try meditation? You know, there's different things that can benefit us. Can we try group therapy? That has been super healing for a lot of members of our community and hope for recovery. It's hope and then the number four recovery is a great website that offers free online group therapy specifically around trauma. I highly encourage you to check that out. They are doing a ton of different groups. They need uh, a lot of support. So if you're a clinician out there and you can uh, volunteer some of your time, please volunteer some of your time. I've done it. It's great. Um, I should actually volunteer again. It's been quite a few months since I've done it. I think it's been like five, six months maybe. Um, yeah, a great organization. So those are just, those are the things that I encourage you to do. Talk therapy works for some, but not for all. Actually for most, it doesn't. And that's okay. There are tons of other treatment options. There's actually even something called, I talk about in my book called Stellate Ganglion Block or SGB. Yeah. I'm like, wait, yes. <laughs> and that is um, an injection in our neck because our stellate ganglion, which is like a nerve, a group of nerves, which they found, and they've been doing this treatment for a lot of people who have like swallowing issues or trigeminal neuralgia, different neurological conditions and things like that. They've been injecting um, them to kind of reduce the stellate ganglion because they believe it's like responsible for a lot of those things. But they also found, surprise, surprise, that doing the stellate ganglion block on those of us with trauma reduced our symptoms of PTSD. What? Right? So there's a ton of different things that we can do. Don't think that talk therapy is the only route. It only works for, you know, 40% of people and we'll get you some more help because it will go away. Okay. There was a comment on this says to add on, can childhood trauma resolve at least in part on its own? No. Or do we just need to get better at managing triggers and their effects? As I've gotten older, my trauma has less of a day-to-day effect on my life, but I still see a therapist because carrying on with my life as usual has only got me so far. That's a great question. It doesn't get better on its own. We're going to need some support and we're going to need to have more coping skills and get to a place where we can talk about the trauma without any, you know, emotional upheaval or overwhelm. And that's not to say that we can't have like a really shittier, overwhelming day or month. Let's say we're moving and we have a bunch of stuff going on that we can't be triggered and start to, you know, have a flashback here and there, but it should be so few and far in between that it's not something that's affecting us very often. And so it doesn't resolve on its own, but with support and with the right tools, it can and it will. And there will still be some days, just like anything. It's like we can be cured from having pneumonia, but then sometimes, or it's like, for me, it's like strep throat. As a kid, I got strep throat so much. And so obviously I got my tonsils out and that doesn't mean that I'll never get strep throat again, right? 
It just means that I need to take better care of myself and I've learned how to keep it at bay and to prevent it. If I feel any tickle in my throat, I like sleep for like 12 hours. You guys, I'm like so, I hate strep throat. It's been like ruining my life for years. And so I know how to keep it at bay and that's the same. It's like we can still have some flashbacks and symptoms, but if we are more aware, we can do things ahead of time so it doesn't get to that point. Now, there was another question on here says, also, how do you take your power back when you were traumatized constantly throughout your childhood and don't feel like you know what it is to have any power? My therapist told me that I need to take back my power, but never gave me any guidance on how to do it. This is a great question. I guess I'd be curious about this and I'd probably ask some follow-ups of your therapist, but the work for you is what would it mean to have power? What does that mean to you? Well, how would you define power and how would you what would it look like? What would it look like if you woke up one morning and you had your power back? What do you think that would look like? Now, if we can't even get to that, you're going to have to ask your therapist to explain more about what they mean. Now I can give you some of my ideas, but I would ask them specifically because I want to make sure that you're on the same page as your therapist. And it's not just me telling you what that would mean. If I said it to you, I want you to know what they meant when they said it. Now, if I told a patient that I wanted them to take their power back, I would talk to them about like feeling confident and ability to make decisions and being able to tell their abuser no or to fight back because maybe we went to freeze and we wish we fight or flight, right? I would talk about that a little bit to get their wheels spinning on what that, you know, what power can look like and what power maybe was taken from them. A lot of times when we're abused, when we're young, we we are powerless. We feel helpless, right? Because we couldn't fight back. We didn't really have a choice. We couldn't move out and leave. You know, there's a lot of things that we can feel like our power was taken from us, or maybe we even said no and yelled no and thought something happened to us anyways, right? There can be a lot of different ways that our power was taken. And so, figuring out what that means for you and giving it back to yourself, meaning that you get to make decisions without asking other people. You say no, people listen. You know, there can be ways you can practice. And I would set up some scenarios if I was your therapist for you to practice doing those things. But again, I want you to consider what power looks like for you. Ask your therapist what they meant so we can ensure that we're all on the same page. And then do that practice of like, if I woke up and I had my power back, what would it look like? How would I know that I have my power back? Hmm. How would things be different? How would I feel? Just curious. Okay. Now there was a, I think, uh, final, final comment on this said, I'm curious about this. And to add, I feel like discussing the trauma to void it of its power isn't working, but how do you acknowledge the trauma without experiencing it and remembering it? There's a point when enough is enough, right? It's not like I want to play the victim, but without all the trauma, who am I? So moving forward seems impossible. Ooh. Okay. So along the same lines as what I talked about, how different you might need more than talk therapy. Talk therapy might not be the right fit for you. It might've gotten you so far, but now we don't feel like it's gotten us as far as we need. Right. And so there's that. Then I think there's an interesting, there's interesting work to be done. A lot of times with mental health issues is like, who am I without this diagnosis? A lot of us don't know, especially when it comes to trauma, especially if we were traumatized in our childhood, we never felt free to develop our sense of self and our likes and dislikes. And so I would encourage you to be curious about who you are. I'd even start some journal entries about who am I? And I would start by writing down things you like and things you don't like. Let's get into food. Let's get into music. Let's get into types of clothing and books and uh, maybe like, do you like crowds or not? 
I don't like crowds, but maybe you love crowds. Do you like live music or do you prefer to listen to music at home? Do you like to eat out? You know, I know this sounds silly, but we keep it just simple. Like imagine you're like a five or six year old kid and you're meeting some other kids at kindergarten for the very first time. What do you ask each other? You ask like, what are your hobbies? So maybe we try out some new things, right? Um, do we like to play guitar? Do we want to learn to do that? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Do we enjoy car racing? Want to watch that on TV? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Do we like to color? Do we like to organize? Do we, uh, I don't know, like to plan events and have friends over? Like, let's just start considering some things. And a great way to even think about this is even just to watch TV. Watch like some basic sitcom and notice all the things about those people, like those characters. Notice the traits, the things they do, the things like their career, the clothes they wear, maybe the food, or maybe they say they don't like spicy food, right? There's a lot of different character attributes that are going to come out in a show. Maybe take one of your favorite shows like The Office or Seinfeld or something that like has been out forever and maybe you've watched a zillion times, you know? What are the things you like and don't like about those characters and why? Because that can tell us a little bit about ourselves. And just having that kind of childlike curiosity can help tease out who we are. And if we're not, you know, our diagnosis, which none of us are, it's just one little small piece of who we are, then, you know, what's left. And that can help you kind of fill in those blanks a little bit. I think of it like a mosaic, right? We have one little piece. It's like trauma. But what about all the other little pieces? Okay. Final question. Question number eight says, hi, Katie, I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. says, just wondering, is it normal to want a relationship, but then also not want one at the same time? 100%. As I don't want to be responsible for anyone else. I am a carer and I often feel selfish having time to myself and feel responsible for others a lot of the time. I feel like wanting a relationship and family of my own in the future is also selfish. I wonder why. Hmm. Any advice on how to overcome this or am I just being stupid? No, you're not being stupid. Don't be so judgmental. I'm, I am curious. I would want you to journal a little bit about why would wanting a relationship or family be selfish? I'm curious. That's an interesting thought process I'd never come to on my own. So tell me about it. How is it selfish? What makes that selfish for you? Write about that. I'm curious. And then it is very normal to want a relationship and not at the same time because relationships take energy and effort, right? And if we don't really feel like we have any of that extra energy and effort, it sounds exhausting. However, that doesn't mean that we still don't want connectivity and intimacy, right? Those are things as humans we crave. We're wired to want and need that. And it's okay. So of course you want that. It's normal to want and not want because you know what is what it comes with, right? And because you're a carer, I would encourage you very strongly to work on this selfish feeling we have when we spend time on our own because you already do and do so much for others and give so much to others that we have to start getting that under control so that we can have a healthy relationship with someone else where it's give and take and they're helping us and we're helping them. And it's this like mutual thing. And you don't feel like you're always the carer because I don't want you to get caught into that carer role where then you're the only one doing that in your relationship. Does that make sense? And so paying attention to that and working on that, I have a feeling we might struggle with people pleasing a little bit maybe. And so learning how to say no, understanding boundaries, those would be things that I would have you work on in therapy. I have tons of videos about, you know, saying no and boundaries and how we can set those up. Um, I even did a whole relationship workshop over the summer when we were moving in like May and June. You can get it on my website. Just go to katiemorton.com. All of the live, because I live streamed them for like an hour, hour and a half. 
they're all there. There's downloadable worksheets. You can still buy it now and have access to it all. Um, that might be really helpful too. But it's very normal to, to want and not want because it's a lot of work. It's like many of my friends who are just now trying to decide if they want kids are like, I want them, but I don't at the same time. Like Sean and I getting a dog. We've wanted a dog for a long time. And then when we came into the house and we actually had like a yard, I was like, oh my God, something's going to depend on us. Do we want to do this? And we were in the car after meeting Roxy. And I'm like, I told Sean, I was like, should we just do it? Let's just do it. And he's like, we got to do it. We're never going to feel like we're ready. And we were right. It's hard. We wanted it and not at the same time. It takes a lot of work, but it's good that you recognize that. And I just want you to get those things under control. And I don't even say under control is probably not the right word. Managing our struggles with self-priority, right? You need to have your, put yourself first before trying to bring someone else into your life because that's going to complicate things. And I want you to feel okay telling them, no, I can't because I need alone time. I want you to feel okay doing that. And then taking that time. I think all of that's very important on for you having a healthy, happy relationship and you totally deserve it. And it's not selfish, but I'm curious why you think that way and write about that. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for watching. I hope that these answers were helpful. Thank you for sending in your questions. Make sure you take care of yourself the rest of this week and weekend, and I will see you next time. Bye. Huh? All done. Oh, you did it. You can ask her about Uh-oh. yourself. Well, good thing I didn't cancel our peeps hurt. yet. You can ask her why yeah. breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.